Welcome back to all talks of the WSA Spotlight. This is your host Marvin again, and over the next two hours, we will receive updates on sepsis from a great lineup of speakers from all around the world. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for WSC Spotlight there. Now, let me hand it over to our colleague Dr. Nekmetin Ünal from Turkey to get the session started. Dear my colleagues from all over the world, good morning, good afternoon and good evening for all of you. This is Nekmetin Ünal from Turkey. I'm professor in anesthesiology and intensive care at Ankara Medical Faculty. I am also vice president of Turkish Society of Intensive Care and ambassador of Global Sepsis Alliance. Welcome to the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight, maternal and fetal side of the sepsis, one of the GSA's worldwide invaluable and annual web meetings. This is fourth and last session of the web meeting. It's very big pleasure for me to chair the session and to to be together with world's leading sepsis masters. Session will take approximately two hours and eight very important and well-known speakers will attend to the session. 12 minutes speaking time and three minutes discussion period have been assigned for each speaker. During presentation, you may write down your questions online about actual speeches. Please do not add too much interpretations to your questions and prefer to write down short but precise questions. Please do not forget to write down your name, profession, area of specialization, and your country at the end of the questions. After all, after uh, each speech, I will try to ask your question as long as time is permitted. At the end of the session, after eight speakers, we will have some additional time for discussion, and at that time, all speakers will answer rest of your previous and new questions in addition to their comments on other subjects. So, now let me to introduce you first speaker. It's really a big pleasure for me to introduce you a very well-known speaker as the first speaker, Mitchell Levy. Uh, Mitchell Levy uh, from from United States, from Warren Alfred Medical School of Brown, Brown University. He is Chief of Division of Critical Care, Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine. He is also Medical Director of Medical Intensive Care Unit at Rhode Island Hospital. Dr. Levy is a founding member and member of the executive committee of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. He is past president of Society of Critical Care Medicine, and he continues to serve as the representative to the National Quality Forum for Society of Critical Care Medicine. Heading of his speech is the impact of governmental regulations on sepsis outcomes in New York. Okay, Michel, Michel, it's your turn. Thank you, Nekmetin, and I really appreciate being able to be on this really important uh, day where globally we can all discuss the um, importance of identifying sepsis early 
and treating it adequately. What I'd like to do for the next 12 minutes is talk to you about what I think is a very exciting initiative that occurred in the United States over the past two years, and that is the first public-mandated program by a government, a state government in the United States, and that is occurred in New York State. Um, this occurred because of the unfortunate and tragic death of this young man, Rory Staunton. Rory Staunton died in uh, 2012 uh, from an unrecognized group uh, A beta hemolytic strep infection that he received during a sports injury that was missed in one of the hospitals in New York City. And that gave rise to um, in the fact that in October 2012, the New York State Health Commissioner announced his intention at the direction of the governor of New York State to require reporting of sepsis performance measures statewide. The performance measures that were used were, in fact, the surviving sepsis campaign, uh, sepsis measures that were adopted by the National Quality Forum, uh, and they're referred to as the 0500 measures. And at that time, the uh, state mandated protocol be, uh, protocols be submitted by every hospital in New York State, and the protocol requirements were a system for screening and early recognition of patients with sepsis, severe sepsis and septic shock. Uh, that involved criteria for those who are appropriate for and those who should be excluded from these uh, protocols for severe sepsis and septic shock. In addition, there were guidelines for hemodynamic support, including where appropriate vasoactive agents with explicit physiologic and biomarker biomarkers, including lactate. Uh, the methods for invasive and non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring treatment goals were left to individual hospitals based on a table of choices that were available to all the hospitals in New York State. In addition, the hospitals were mandated via, via these performance measures to administer antibiotics within one hour and to uh, complete fluid administration of 30 cc's per kilogram as per standard of care of patients who are hypotensive or who had elevated lactates within three hours of identification of these patients. And finally, there was a procedure in these protocols for the identification of an infectious source and adequate source control. So what I'd like to do is go over the data that we collected over this time period. It was a two-year initiative that is, by the way, still ongoing. And the database uh, from which we're, I'm going to show you the data analysis has over 100,000 patients. And as I mentioned before, it was the first mandated public reporting program in sepsis, which is now, of course, done on a national level in the United States through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. What I'm going to show you are two reports, one of which has been published in the New England Journal and the other which is uh, now under review and with a submitted revision in the Annals of Internal Medicine that looks at hospital performance in terms of compliance with the sepsis performance measures and reports of the risk-adjusted mortality. So in terms of overall results, the, this is an example of the report card that each hospital in New York State receives. And you see here the hospitals are grouped according to the percentile of performance that is benchmarked against each other. And so hospitals get a report card that allows them to assess where their hospital is in their performance on the three and the six-hour bundles compared 
to the other hospitals in New York State, and you can see the 25th and 75th percentile that are benchmarked here. Here is the overall report that is included in this paper that is being uh, now in revision in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And you can see here uh, that the, over the two-year period of the trial, the uh, increase in both the three-hour bundle and the six-hour bundle, and as I mentioned, this is in uh, almost 100,000 patients. And you can see in these 74,000 patients that were analyzed in this table, uh, an increase in the three and six-hour bundle that was statistically significant over the two-year period, and um, with an increase in compliance of 0.43% per month that was statistically significant at a p-value of less than 0.001, while the risk-adjusted mortality decreased by 0.17% per month, and that was also statistically significant over the course of the two-year period. Uh, this is also an important slide because it shows you the difference in patients for whom the protocols were initiated and those for whom they were not initiated, and you see here a statistically significant difference in that, uh, that in mortality over the course of the two-year period, and for the patients for whom no protocol was initiated, there was no change in mortality, while for the 74,000 patients in whom a protocol was initiated, in fact, you can see here a starting in quarters one and two, a statistically significant separation in mortality between these two groups that demonstrates that the patients in whom a protocol was initiated had a significant decrease in mortality over the remaining course of the study compared to the patients in whom a protocol was not initiated. That's pretty compelling data that shows an association between mortality and, in, and the protocol initiation over the course of the two-year period. This is also an important slide because it shows the relationship between risk-adjusted mortality and compliance over the two-year period. And what you see here is uh, four quartiles of compliance with the three-hour bundle and the associated risk-adjusted mortality uh, that is associated with each of these quartiles. And you can see here in the first quartile, the second, the third, and the fourth, as compliance goes up with bundles, with the three-hour bundles and the six-hour bundles, the risk-adjusted mortality declines from 29.8% in the first quartile to 23.5% in the fourth quartile, fourth quartile, and that's statistically significant at a p-value of less than 0.001. So very nice evidence of the association with compliance and risk-adjusted mortality that demonstrates as mortality goes up, I'm sorry, as compliance goes up across the four quartiles of increasing compliance, the, act, the mortality associated with those quartiles goes down in a statistically significant fashion. Really compelling evidence that compliance with the performance measures are associated with improved survival in these patients. The next thing, oh, and uh, this is another slide that shows nicely that for every 10% increase in the three-hour bundle compliance, there's a 5% decrease in the odds ratio of mortality at, again, statistically significant at the p-value of point less than 0 0.001. 
The next data shows us the relationship between time to treatment and risk-adjusted mortality. These are data that we recently published in the New England Journal uh, in May of this year, and you see in the right panel that as the time to compliance with the overall three-hour bundle goes up, there's a statistically significant increase in the uh, in the in hospital in the risk adjusted mortality rate for every hour delay in the for in the completion of the three hour bundle. This is also true for the administration of for antibiotics. That is that for every hour delay in the administration of antibiotics, as the same as the three hour bundle completion there's a statistically significant increase in the administration of antibiotics. This was not, however, true for um, fluid administration. So in summary, what I tried to demonstrate over these last 10 minutes is um, that the government that we are now in the United States have significant government-mandated reporting, both at a statewide level and the data I showed you uh, was for New York State, and there are plans to to roll this out in other states as well, and a federally go uh, mandated government mandate um, for compliance and re public reporting of, of, of performance measures with sepsis. And I think we have to say from the data that I just showed you, that is, two most important me uh, messages here is that it is possible to change clinical behavior through the use of performance measures, and two, that participation and compliance with the performance measures were actually associated with a higher uh, survival rate. So compliance with the performance measure matters and time to treatment also now in the uh, study that I just showed you at the end matters. So really important data that show that we can make a difference in these patients with um, with um, with severe sepsis and septic shock, we can change clinical behavior and we can make a difference in survival. And with that, I'll say thank you for your attention and I really appreciate being able to be here with all of you today on this Global Sepsis Day. McMetton? Uh, thank you very much, Michelle. A uh, very impressive presentation and results. Thank you very much, really. But I'm thinking about my country. Uh, we don't have such a program, and uh, therefore we don't measure the compliance of, of our uh, colleagues in Turkey. Uh, how can we transfer to your experience uh, to other countries, and how can we put pressure on our governments or several countries' governments uh, to put this kind of regulations in their agenda? What you offer to us? Well, I think that's a great question, McMahon. First of all, I believe that the the volume of the published literature right now would be one way that I would think and suggest that you go to the federal government, certainly the health department, because I think the evidence in the literature is fairly compelling that compliance with these measures are associated with improved survival. And in addition, these even uh, in most countries, all we're showing is the administration of ra rapid administration of antibiotics, uh, obtaining blood cultures, and, um, and giving fluid administration. So these are available to the large majority of cultures. In addition, on the Surviving Sepsis Campaign website, we do have the ability to enter data and measure performance. So it's possible 
to help other cultures and help the, your 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 government to measure people's performance and hold clinicians accountable for their performance because the data in the literature strongly suggests that audit and feedback to clinicians about their performance is the best way to change the clinical behavior. Okay, thank you very much. Time is over, it's going too, fa too fast. Uh, thank you very much for your very impressive results. And we uh, turn off to second uh, speaker. Good evening, uh, and you. see you during discussion period. Thank you. Okay, our second speaker is Simon. Simon Favier uh, from uh, Australia, from Sydney. He is professor in medicine at the University of New South Wales and clinical professor at the University of Sydney. He is a past chair of the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Society Clinical Trials Group. He chairs the Council of the International Sepsis Forum and is a member of the Global Sepsis Alliance Executive Committee. His topic, speaking topic, is evidence-based therapy. What is new? Simon, it's your turn. Uh, thank you very much for the introduction and for the opportunity to speak to people today. Uh, my, my topic is evidence-based sepsis therapy, what's new? And unfortunately, uh, there are not any major breakthroughs in terms of new drug treatments for sepsis, despite a great deal of, of effort from both um, independent investigators and industry over a, a number of years, and certainly nothing in the immediate uh, past that has caused um, a significant change. And I've, you may already have heard some of the uh, discussion about changes that have um, resulted from really process changes in, in how we use the, the current basic treatments that are available to us that can reduce mortality. The best recent summary of the evidence uh, for over how we should be treating patients with sepsis comes from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, which uh, published the most recent iteration of the guidelines for the management of sepsis and septic shock in 2016. These guidelines were published um, both in intensive care medicine uh, uh, and in critical care medicine early this year, 2017, um, an extensive review which had taken two years. They, the guidelines give 93 statements um, on the early management of sepsis and septic shock, and obviously in the time available to me, I can't go through all of those, so I have selected some. They produced 32 strong statements, 39 weak statements, and, and eight best, best practice statements. Uh, the to understand how they uh, classified these um, statements in terms of the strength of evidence behind them, they a strong recommendation is something that the uh, guideline panels felt that most individuals in the in the situation would want that recommended treatment, and only a small proportion would not. Whereas for a weak recommendation, the majority of individuals would want the suggested treatment or course of action, but many would not want that. And for clinicians, a similar feeling that 
expert for a strong recommendation. Most um, would individuals would want the, act, the the treatment or the action, and adherence to the the recommendation according to the guideline could be used as a quality or performance indicator. Whereas for a weaker recommendation, um, there would be circumstances in which uh, it would be appropriate to use different treatments. So. I'm going to concentrate on some aspects around um, initial re resuscitation. Um, they, they were not able to give really strong recommendations um, in terms of evidence that sepsis and septic shock were medical emergencies and treatment and resuscitation should begin immediately, although there is clearly evidence um, has emerged from observational data that the earlier sepsis and septic shock are treated, uh, the better the outcome. They also recommended, um, again, similar to previous iterations, that there should be a um, rapid fluid resuscitation involving at least 30 mils per kilo of an IV crystalloid fluid within three hours, although this is based on low-quality evidence. Um, and again, these are recommendations predominantly, uh, well, for adult patients rather than for children. They, the evidence for rapid administration of intravenous antibiotics within one hour, um, I will again, is observational data. We're not going to see a randomized control trial ever that suggests that compares early and late administration of antibiotic. And I think that's uh, something that we're going to all agree should be done as quickly as possible when one has identified a patient as having sepsis. Probably the, the critical thing um, in terms of avoiding unnecessary administration of, anti of broad-spectrum antibiotics is to have a policy of de-escalation in that regard. You may already be aware of the analysis of the data um, conducted by Christopher Seymour and colleagues that was published in the New England Journal uh, very recently, which looked at the um, outcomes of patients uh, treated in uh, New York State where um, there are now uh, state-based regulations that require each hospital to have a protocol for the early identification of treatment of sepsis. And these, this produced um, some very interesting data in terms of the outcomes related to the um, compliance with these protocols. This backs up um, some of the earlier data that we had about uh, from um, Anand Kumar and colleagues in, from Canada that the delays in administration of antibiotics uh, were associated with, with worsening in outcome. So the, um, the New York data was looking at compliance with a three-hour bundle of uh, management for severe sepsis and septic shock. And this, um, this protocol involved, uh, recommended the drawing of blood cultures prior to the administration of antibiotics, the measurement of, of a blood lactate level within three hours of protocol initiation and the administration of antibiotics. And compliance with the protocol, the time to compliance was associated with, out, 
a, a better outcome. The earlier the compliance, the, the, the lower the mortality rate. Now, clearly, the only therapeutic part of that um, three-hour bundle is the administration of antibiotics. Uh, measuring blood lactate and drawing blood cultures can't change outcome. So clearly, any beneficial effect there is going to be related to the administration of antibiotics. The six-hour bundle, which included the administration of the 30 uh, mils or cc's per kilogram of fluid and the administration of vasopressors, and again, a, a remeasurement of lactate, um, those, uh, those were the three components that can, were included in that bundle. What, what they found, and again, you may be aware of these data, was that after adjusting uh, for the, uh, the risk of death um, based on the baseline characteristics of the patient, there was a clear association between earlier completion of the three-hour bundle and, again, earlier administration of antibiotics, which was the only therapeutic component of the bundle, um, that that completing those earlier was associated with a reduction in mortality. Interestingly, um, and this is fairly novel data, the risk-adjusted adjust uh, mortality in the hospital mortality was not, um, there was not a significant association with the time to completion of fluid bolus. Um, this, it's, it's difficult to interpret these data. These were patients who were hypotensive, who required a fluid bolus. Um, and clearly, it may be that the focus that we have had on the administration of fluid um, is something that is not supported by such strong data. However, clearly, when pa patients are hypotensive, um, we would want to treat that hypotension um, and there is a recommendation to um, consider uh, the use of vasopressors, possibly prior to given, giving uh, a great deal more fluid than we have done in the past. These data are backed up by um, some interesting uh, new studies looking at more restrictive approaches to the administration of fluid. Um, there is some studies being conducted by the Scandinavian Critical Care Trials Group in which they are comparing um, restrictive versus a more liberal administration of fluid in patients uh, with circulatory um, insufficiency due to septic shock. The restrictive component of this is, is I would consider very restrictive. Um, the study that they have conducted, um, they in the restrictive arm, they were giving crystalloid fluid boluses only if the mean arterial pressure was less than 50, the serum lactate was greater than four, and there was peripheral mottling. Whereas in the standard care arm, uh, crystalloid boluses were given as long as um, so either static or hemodynamic variables were improved by the further administration of fluid. In, the, in their um, phase two or pilot study, uh, which they published recently, it's a relatively small study being a phase two study, 
um, 151 patients were included in the study. And they found that um, while there was, again, you know, it was a phase two study, it wasn't designed to be large enough to report on, on mortality or survival differences. The, there wasn't a difference in that, uh, although the point estimate uh, favored the more restrictive, restrictive policy. Other measures such as um, the occurrence of ischemic events during the intensive care unit and worsening of acute kidney injury um, were also favoring an approach that was more restrictive in the administration of fluid. So this raises the question whether a more liberal use of vasoactive drugs um, and, and the administration of less fluid may be beneficial in patients with septic shock. Um, I think it's important for people to realize that the, the primary recommended uh, uh, vasopressor is norepinephrine at the current time, and that norepinephrine does have beta-adrenergic effects. It does cause venoconstriction, which has the same effect as administration of fluid, and it's possible that using vasopressors earlier in preference to a great deal of fluid may be beneficial. The, the Scandinavian group, along with others, are pursuing this line of investigation, and there will be larger studies that may be able to guide our fluid therapy in the future so that we are conducting this uh, part of sepsis resuscitation with a greater evidence base behind us. As I've said, the choice, uh, the recommendation from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is still that we use norepinephrine as the first choice vasopressor um, and second uh, to which could be added uh, vasopressin or um, dopamine only in very selected patients. Um, the evidence in favor of, um, of adding vasopressin is is only based on a very moderate quality of evidence. A recent um, article um, reported on the use of angiotensin II for the treatment of, in, of uh, vasodilatory shock. This was published in the, the New England Journal very recently. Um, and this wasn't considered in the guidelines because the data are too, too early for that. The, the study looked at patients who were on quite high doses of norepinephrine, um, and then the outcome measure for the study was whether um, blood pressure was elevated without an increase in the use of, of um, additional norepinephrine. What they found was that the use of angiotensin did um, improve the blood pressure, which is not surprising, but there was a a, a trend in the paper towards a reduction in mortality, which would support um, moving on to a larger trial. There are a number, the, as I said, my time does not allow me to go through the very extensive, um, uh, comprehensive look at the evidence that was produced in this guideline documents, which is much bigger than the previous guidelines. Uh, but I would certainly recommend that anyone who's, who's managing patients with severe sepsis uh, take, a very, uh, take the time to read the documents, read the recommendations, uh, and also look at the evidence behind it. Uh, 
probably what uh, what uh, has led to the most likely reduction in that we're seeing observing a reduction in the mortality from sepsis around the world. Um, it's still obviously a major global health problem, but we are seeing some benefits. And a lot of that benefit comes from raising awareness, uh, which is where a lot of effort is done. Um, and although there clearly is, we're not going to get randomized controlled studies that look at sepsis awareness, there's again a clear association between raising awareness, as has been done notably in the United Kingdom and in other countries, into approving the outcome. So I would recommend, to wrap up, I would recommend that uh, to people who wish to practice um, evidence-based uh, practice related to the management of sepsis and septic shock, uh, that you can't do better to, in terms of a single source of information than to go to the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. And I've just uh, hopefully given a little taste of the evidence that they produced. Simon, thank you very much uh, for your presentation. But uh, okay, now we uh, have a new guideline. But uh, in a short time, possibly, we should change it according to Scandinavian study results. Possibly in future, we can apply less fluid and more vasopressor. But, but uh, I have a question. Uh, for example, in my country, well, we don't have vasopressin. Instead of vasopressin, we are using telepressin. It exists in my country. It's, it's approximately, it has approximately the same effects. What do you think to use of telepressin instead of vasopressin in such cases? Well, I think the to, to not quite answer your question immediately, I think one of the, the things that we do have to, to do in the future is the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines are very much focused towards the United States and Europe and other high-income countries. And most, you know, 85% plus of the world's population live in low and middle income countries where a lot of the treatments um, and management protocols discussed may not be available. So we do need to produce guidelines um, that are applicable in other settings in low and middle income countries. The evidence for the use of terlipressin or other um, vasopressors um, where either where vasopressin is not available, I don't believe there is strong evidence that, that I could make a recommendation that you do or do not do that. Um, the comparative study, there are comparative studies that have looked at uh, uh, compared nor norepinephrine and epinephrine. Um, a lot of people shy away from epinephrine because it produces a hyperlactatemia, which may be confusing in terms of whether a patient is responding to treatment or not, although that is transient. And if you if you look at the um, studies led by John Myberg uh, that looked at the compared epinephrine and norepinephrine in terms of outcomes, mortality, and time to wean from vasopressors, there's no difference. But epinephrine does cause a hyperlactatemia, which um, can confuse people in terms of who are using lactate as a, a marker of whether the patient is improving or not. There isn't a good evidence base to make a recommendation on other vasopressors. 
Okay, thank you very much. There is a, a last question from the audiences. What do you think about the use of corticosteroids in pregnancy? So um, the data for for or against the use of, of corticosteroids, um, the adrenal study, which has been conducted by the uh, the ANZIX clinical trials group led by Bala Venkatesh, has completed. We're we're about to lock the database, and hopefully, either by the end of this year or very early next year, we will report the results of this trial, which is three thousand eight hundred patients, which is more than uh, considerably more than all the patients in all the other studies so far reported. We don't know the result yet, and hopefully, that will clear up this controversy for once and for all. Current recommendation is to consider the use of steroids in patients who are um, who are poorly fluid and vasopressor responsive. Jilali Anain did, did um, present in, in the Brussels meeting earlier this year results from his study, um, at which he again reported a mortality benefit from the use of a combination of hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone. That study was completed um, completed recruitment to over two years ago and is not yet published. And I think we should not act on those results until the the, the study is published. And it, that will likely, I don't know whether that's going to occur before or after the adrenal study, but the adrenal study will be by far and away the strongest evidence for or against the use of, hydro, uh, of hydrocortisone in patients with septic shock. Currently, the, the surviving sepsis campaign guideline is to consider it. It's a weak recommendation in, in patients who are poorly responsive to fluids and vasopressors. Um, and we really need the results of the adrenal study to make a, more, a stronger recommendation on that. Okay, thank you very much for your presentation, also for your answers. Uh, we are switching to third speaker of the session. Wida Hamilton, uh, health service executive from Ireland. Uh, she is consultant in anesthesia and intensive care. Dr. Hamilton is an honorary senior lecturer in the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland and tutor in anesthesia for the College of Anesthesia of Ireland and is honorary secretary for the Joint Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine in Ireland and council member of the Intensive Care Society of Ireland. She is representing the council at the sepsis section of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. She is the clinical lead for sepsis, sits on the National Sepsis Steering Committee, and is co-author of the National Guidelines on Sepsis Management, and is leading the implementation program. Her Topic, uh, speech topic is Sepsis Quality Improvement Initiatives Save Lives. Dr. Hamilton, please, it's your turn. Thank you very much and uh, good evening everyone from Ireland. Um, so I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about uh, sepsis quality improvement. And um, in the uh, 2016 uh, Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guideline update, there was a new recommendation and that was that hospitals and hospital systems have a performance improvement program for sepsis. 
And this was based on a meta-analysis of uh, around 50 observational studies that showed in the presence of a uh, quality improvement program, there was a significant increase in compliance with the campaign bundles. And this was associated with the reduction in, in mortality with an odds ratio of 0.66. So what are the issues? Well, when we approached our quality uh, improvement program, we uh, recognized that uh, there was evidence behind early recognition and treatment, uh, giving patients the best opportunity to survive. But this then had to be balanced against overdiagnosis and overtreatment with antimicrobials, um, you know, in this uh, environment of concerns with uh, growing multi-organ uh, 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 multi-resistant uh, uh, organisms, multi-drug resistant organisms. And certainly uh, physicians whose behavior were keen to change uh, towards an early recognition and treatment uh, protocol uh, certainly had great concerns about uh, over-treatment. And another big concern was that with an overemphasis or potential overemphasis on sepsis, there could be misdiagnosis and the actual cause of a patient's deterioration being missed and having delayed treatment because, as it turned out, it wasn't sepsis. Other concerns was the um, loss of clinical autonomy and the loss of flexibility in clinical practice associated with a checkbox approach uh, to medicine. Um, and, and this is something that's of ongoing concern with clinicians. And then, of course, achieving uh, behavior change is hard. It requires energy to, um, to change behavior. And therefore, you need to have a really good rationale for uh, changing your behavior. And it's also difficult to sustain it. So you have to really believe in what you're doing um, and uh, have faith in the data. So in Ireland, uh, we have a government-mandated sepsis quality impro uh, improvement program. It's uh, led by a multidisciplinary steering committee with representation from all specialties and all services, recognizing that sepsis, of course, occurs in all specialties and all services. And this is one of the issues with uh, sepsis. Because it occurs to all specialties, it belongs to no one specialty. And uh, with because it's everybody's problem, it becomes nobody's problem. Nobody takes ownership. Um, so our uh, desire in our program is that all specialties and all services have the competency to recognize patients who are at risk of sepsis and to initiate the sepsis six uh, one-hour bundle um, adapted from uh, the bundles developed by Ron Daniels' uh, group. We published a national guideline in 2014, which was adapted from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guideline and including uh, the Sepsis 6 one-hour bundle. Uh, our guideline is mainly orientated towards uh, initial recognition and uh, the initial treatment bundle and then escalation to specialty care. So it's orientated at the emergency department and the patient deteriorating on the ward. And the implementation of the guideline is uh, led by the national team. We um, believe in very strong leadership, and uh, we have had an annual sepsis summit, um, which is opened by our Minister for Health. And at the first summit, we requested hospital managers and lead clinicians to create sepsis committees in every acute hospital in the state. And we also uh, started our outcome audit process 
and we use our hospital inpatient inquiry system, which is an ICD-10 with the Australian modification and the eighth edition. And that's a, got a little bit more inbuilt flexibility than the American uh, ICD-10. So we looked for very clear outcome uh, aims within five years. We're looking for a 20% reduction in sepsis-associated hospital mortality. And we clearly defined uh, processes to achieve those aims. And those processes, uh, we required them to be evidence-based. And we clearly assigned roles and responsibilities, not just for clinicians, but for the Department of Health, for the health services executive, for the hospital group managers and leadership teams, for the hospital leadership teams through to uh, the clinicians. And we institute a process of measurement using um, our hype database for outcome data, but also using chart review for process measurement because we do not have an electronic patient record system. We took a multimodal approach to achieving our process aims. We recognize absolutely that the just do it approach does not work. It requires strong leadership um, at a national level, but also at a hospital level. And sepsis champions uh, have had a huge impact in the hospitals that are most effective at implementing the program. Um, education, uh, Compliant with the national guideline is now occurring at an undergraduate, postgraduate and at a hospital-based level. Um, we've involved end users and service users in our process development. Um, we adapted clinical decision support tools uh, working with the different specialties so that it would, one, work within their working environment, but two, because they were involved in the development of their clinical decision support tool or sepsis form, uh, they took ownership of that form and it helped reduce the barriers and, and reluctance to use the forms. We tried to make things easier to do the right thing than not to do the right thing. Um, in a very busy environment, something that increases workload will be much more difficult to um, to institute than something that reduces workload. So using sepsis trolleys, having clinical dis uh, decision support tools to help support clinicians, and often the first line clinician is relatively junior with maybe uh, you know only two or three years uh, hospital experience and we're looking for a generational change so that having come through undergraduate and postgraduate uh, education and hospital-based training all um, supporting our sepsis implementation program that it'll become the norm rather than something new that has to be done. So, in order to convince uh, our clinicians that what we were doing uh, was not wasting their time, our first audit in 2016, really we were looking to ask, answer the question, is, are, is using the sepsis form useful or not? We audited just under 1,500 charts, and we found that if the form was used, you were more likely to get the diagnosis correct. Um, it was more likely to be uh, documented uh, correctly at uh, the appropriate severity level, and the patient was more likely to receive their first dose antimicrobials within an hour. We noted that just over half of patients with sepsis were actually documented in the case notes as having sepsis. 
In 2017, we looked at a smaller number of charts, just under 500, but at a much granular approach. We were looking for compliance uh, with taking blood cultures, uh, antimicrobials within one hour, whether the antimicrobial uh, given was as per the local guideline. We have a very strong antimicrobial stewardship program and no sepsis uh, education presentation is uh, done without including uh, antimicrobial stewardship. And we found that, uh, you know, we're in around 60, 70% uh, compliance with components of the bundle, um, but very reassured and very reassuring for clinicians who had concern with excess carbapenem uh, administration uh, consequent to the program. Our compliance with the national, uh, with local antimicrobial guidelines is at 80%. Um, of note, uh, taking a fluid bolus approach uh, to fluid resuscitation is the weakest uh, element of our sepsis bundle. And that corresponds, I think, to uncertainties about uh, the, the right way to fluid resuscitate. Um, we uh, have just launched our second uh, National Sepsis Outcome Report uh, in the beginning of this month, and we've demonstrated a 67% increase in the cases documented um, in 2016. And this is consequent to the uh, awareness and education campaign and represents improved documentation rather than an improved uh, number of, uh, or an increased number of cases. Uh, we're also able to follow our hospital mortality trends, but we are also conscious of the fact that um, you know, improved recognition and documentation will skew the uh, results because less acute, acute sepsis cases will be documented. Um, so while we have a 31% decrease in sepsis mortality over the past five years, it's, uh, it's a little difficult to, to interpret that. What we can say is that the Irish uh, Hospital Sepsis Associated Mortality Rate is 19%, and that excludes patients with a SERS uh, response of an infectious origin without organ dysfunction. So that's a sepsis-3 mortality rate, and certainly that is very reassuring, and we'll continue to follow the trends. Quarterly analysis uh, just demonstrates that, in fact, it was, uh, if not statistical variation, that is the cause of the uh, mortality decrease. Um, our hype database also allows us to identify the patients at higher risk of mortality within our population. So, uh, uh, you know, mortality uh, increases with age, it increases with comorbidities. And it increases also um, if you're in a surgical a diagnostic related group as opposed to a medical diagnostic related group and gender has no impact. So we were able to use this data to inform our updated sepsis forms to be compliant with the sepsis 3 definition. And what we uh, recommend now that patients who present with infection plus one of the following, either their immunosuppressed immunosuppressed due to uh, therapy, they present with clinically overt new organ dysfunction, or if they present with a SERS response due to infection and have one uh, comorbidity, they should receive the sepsis 6 bundle within one hour of identification. And as part of that bundle, their um, uh, blood tests uh, to assess organ dysfunction are sent off, and by three hours then they need to be reviewed. 
the patient is reviewed in terms of their diagnosis with the results of the tests and investigations available to date and also the clinical response to the uh, sepsis 6 bundle. Um, sepsis is diagnosed yes or no. Uh, consequent to the uh, presence of acute organ dysfunction and uh, if the patient requires escalation to specialist care for um, uh, either source control or critical care input or both, uh, then that should have occurred by then. Um, and then at the six-hour review, patients who are have been hemodynamically unstable with fluid-resistant shock should be started on pressors. Also at the um, the uh, sepsis summit at the beginning of this month where we launched our outcome report, uh, we launched our maternal sepsis program. So for the past 12 months, we have been piloting um, sepsis forms um, to identify patients uh, who should receive the sepsis 6 bundle and then similarly um, at by three hours diagnosed uh, with sepsis or not and their um, treatment amended accordingly. Um, this uh, poster here represents our um, part of our publicity or our awareness uh, campaign for maternal sepsis. So this is aimed at the service user. It talks about the risk factors that are associated with increased uh, mortality uh, or increased incidence of sepsis. And it also um, identifies, it provides a checklist of the different symptoms and signs of organ dysfunction. And we also tie in infection and sepsis uh, prevention with uh, good hygiene, uh, good sanitation, promoting vaccination and, and promoting uh, breastfeeding. In our um, maternal sepsis form, we identify three groups of patients uh, to receive the sepsis 6 bundle. Uh, patients who present with infection who are on treatment, that puts them at risk of neutropenia. Patients who present with a, a symptoms of infection and clinically apparent organ dysfunction. And patients who present with a sustained SERS response. And so those three uh, groups of patients get the sepsis 6 bundle and then subsequently uh, when the blood tests become available, sepsis is diagnosed or not and the patient escalated accordingly. So within uh, 12 months, we'll be reviewing our different uh, patient groups and we will be um, assessing them for sensitivity and specificity and then updating our treatment groups uh, based on that data. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very impressive uh, presentation. Uh, and this is a success story, really. Uh, now I am presenting fourth speaker. Uh, he is, uh, she is Hallie Prescott. Prescott from United, Dr. Prescott from United States. Uh, she is actually a doctor and researcher at the University of Michigan and an Arbor VA hospital. Her research focuses on sepsis survivorship. Taken together, Dr. Prescott's studies have highlighted the role of specific treatable medical conditions in driving post-sepsis morbidity. Dr. Prescott, it's your turn, and uh, her topic is, is enhancing sepsis survivorships. Please, Dr. Prescott. Great. Well, thank you for the introduction, and it's um, really my honor to be participating in the WSC Congress. Um, I'll start out with this 
article that was published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in 2006 by Fleischmann et al. This article estimated the global burden of sepsis. Um, and they, the best estimate was 19.4 million uh, severe sepsis cases around the world each year and 5.3 million sepsis-related deaths. Uh, when you take those two numbers together, you see that about 15 million patients survive sepsis each year around the, hospital, uh, around the world. And this number is likely increasing over time as a result of increasing numbers of hospitalization for sepsis, as well as improving in-hospital mortality. And yet we have very little guidance about what to do for patients after hospitalization to promote a better recovery. For example, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, which provide fantastic um, recommendations about what to do for patients during the hospital, do not provide guidance yet about what to do for patients after the hospital to try to promote recovery. We also know that patients currently are not um, completely satisfied with the support services that they receive after sepsis. Uh, for example, in a um, recent web-based uh, international survey of about 1,500 sepsis survivors, they were um, moderately dissatisfied with the quality of care. For example, moderately dissatisfied with the quality of information that they had received about what to expect after surviving sepsis. And so the question that I'll be discussing today is what can we do today to try to enhance survivorship for sepsis? And of course, there are many different answers to this question and many different things that we can be doing for our patients, but I'm going to be focusing on just one answer tonight, and that is preventing further medical deterioration in our patients after they survive a sepsis hospitalization. Um, a couple years ago in American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, I had a study that was a, a nationally representative cohort study um, of older Americans who had survived a sepsis hospitalization. And we followed them over time for the 12 months after hospital discharge and looked over time at the proportion of these patients that were admitted to an inpatient healthcare facility and the proportion who had died. And we found very high rates of inpatient healthcare utilization, particularly in the first 90 days after discharge from sepsis hospitalization. Much of this was time spent in nursing facilities and rehabilitation facilities, but there was also a very high rate of hospital readmission. About 42% of the patients in this cohort were rehospitalized within 90 days after discharge. And then we wondered, what are these patients coming back to the hospital for? Um, and is there something we can do to prevent these readmissions that are certainly making it harder for patients to make a long-term recovery? We know that during the early phases of sepsis that patients have both pro and anti-inflammatory responses, but the balance is tipped generally towards a pro-inflammatory state. But then as time goes on um, with sepsis, most patients are tipped towards an anti-inflammatory phenotype. And so in the later stages and early after um, sepsis, patients are at increased risk for secondary nosocomial infections, for viral reactivation, and for infections with weakly pathogenic organisms. And we also know that patients who die after sepsis show evidence of immune suppression, suggesting um, that boosting the immune system may be um, a way to try to improve outcomes in these patients. 
And so we wondered whether these processes that are occurring during the hospitalization continue on in the outpatient setting, whether this immunosuppression continues and patients are at increased risk for subsequent infection. And so we looked at recurrent sepsis in my hospital. We followed all um, patients who were discharged over a two-year period. We found that about 30% of all patients were readmitted to our hospital, almost certainly a higher number if we were able to capture readmissions to other hospitals. And then of these patients who were readmitted, 29% of them um, were readmitted for another episode of sepsis. We then dug a little bit deeper into the data to try to understand the causes of these episodes of recurrent sepsis, whether they were, um, you know, relapse or recrudescence of that initial infection, uh, meaning that the infection had the same site and same organism in the, as the initial episode, or whether these were new infections. And we found that only in 19% of cases was it definitively the same infection, the same site and the same organism. 47% of the time, it was definitively a different infection, either a different site or a different organism. And about 35% of the time, it was culture negative. So overall, about 50 to 80% of the time, this is a new infection, suggesting that the majority of relapse, recurrent sepsis is not incomplete treatment or relapse of this initial infection, but really that patients surviving sepsis are at increased risk for a variety of different infections, but this continues for months after hospital discharge and is one of the main drivers of hospital readmission. But again, this represents only 30% of the readmissions in this cohort. So then we looked um, at all causes of readmission to try to understand what are the most common reasons um, that people come back to the hospital. Um, and so here I present um, uh, an observational cohort study of about 2,600 older Americans who survived a sepsis hospitalization. And here, too, the most common readmission diagnosis was sepsis, uh, which occurred in 6.4% of the cohort, was readmitted with sepsis in the next 90 days. Other common things were other types of infections, such as pneumonia and urinary tract infection. And then we also noted many different um, readmission diagnoses that are potentially treatable um, in the outpatient setting, um, such as congestive heart failure, acute renal failure, uh, COPD exacerbation, and aspiration pneumonitis. And so for my recommendation today for what we can do to try to enhance survivorship is to focus on these most common and potentially treatable or preventable causes of hospital readmission. And so when we take this list, we can distill it down to what I call the big five um, um, preventable causes of readmission after discharge. So the first one, by far the most common, is infection. And so things that we can do today during the hospitalization are to focus on antibiotic de-escalation. We know that antibiotics are incredibly important early on, but the longer patients are exposed to broad-spectrum antibiotics, they also experience disruption of healthy microbiota. And so we should be working to try to provide shorter antibiotic courses to our patients. Um, we also need to counsel patients on infection, the very high risk for recurrent infection. We know that many patients are not aware of sepsis, and even patients who have survived sepsis don't often know that that's what they've been diagnosed with. And so it's critically important to inform patients that they are high risk of recurrent infection, of recurrent sepsis, and that if they experience signs of symptoms of infection, they need to get back in touch with their doctors, particularly if these are accompanied by signs and symptoms of organ dysfunction, such as confusion or decreased urine output. This is also a good time to make sure that patients have been updated on all of their recommended vaccines. 
In the future, uh, we may have other tools in our toolkit, such as modulating or boosting patients' immunity um, after sepsis um, or repopulating microbiome that has been disrupted due to sepsis or broad-spectrum antibiotics. The next most common cause of readmission, congestive heart failure. Um, this is a very important time, these first few days and weeks after sepsis hospitalization, to focus carefully on patients' volume status and also their medications. Many patients with heart failure are on beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, diuretics, medications that are routinely held during sepsis and for which it might not yet be time to restart them at hospital discharge. We need to carefully watch patients to determine when to resume these medications and whether the dosages need to be altered. We need to keep in the back of our mind that patients may have um, worse um, myocardial suppression as a result of surviving sepsis, and they may have ongoing renal impairment as well. And these may contribute to difficulties in controlling volume status and contribute to worsening heart failure or readmission for heart failure. The next most common preventable cause of readmission is uh, acute renal failure. Um, and here, too, we need to worry about whether patients have ongoing kidney injury or lingering myocardial suppression after the sepsis hospitalization. For patients who have had kidney injury and not had um, complete recovery, I think that it may be important to monitor blood work and ensure that patients um, trend the right direction or that they, at, the, at the least that they stabilize as opposed to having slow worsening of kidney function after hospital discharge. We need to carefully monitor medications here, too, such as diuretics, nephrotoxic agents, renally cleared medications, and adjust um, the dosages as needed um, for patients. The next most common cause is COPD exacerbation. Um, so here, too, we want to make sure patients are updated, have received their current vaccinations, are receiving recommended controller therapies for their disease. And we want to consider whether any of the medications that the patient's taking are perhaps respiratory depressants, such as benzodiazepines and opiates, and whether those dosages need to be adjusted due to new kidney failure or whether medication um, should be discontinued. The last on the top five list is aspiration. Here we want to screen patients for new physical weakness, cognitive impairment, ongoing delirium, all of which increase patients' risk for aspiration in the post-sepsis setting. We want to consider for uh, patients uh, who screen positive for these things whether they would benefit from having a formal swallow evaluation, whether they should have dietary or behavioral modifications to reduce their risk. Um, here we see, again, the, the rate of readmission over time, about 40% of older Americans readmitted sometime in the 90 days after sepsis hospitalization. Uh, uh, more than one in five has a readmission for one of these potentially preventable causes. And so this top five list is uh, the things that I focus on, the things that I think that our health system should focus on um, in those early weeks and months after sepsis hospitalization to try to keep our patients out of the hospital and give them time to recover. Again, this is just one answer, and I think that there are many other ways to enhance sepsis survivorship, things that we can do in the hospitalization, at the time of discharge, and after discharge to help promote recovery. Um, but here I'll close with just putting up the top five list again, uh, and I'm happy to take questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Prescott. Uh, it's impressive, but I'm getting a bit pessimistic when I hear your results. Uh, according to your result, approximately 60% of patients are dying within one year of discharge, uh, and their quality of life possibly very low. And uh, can we say that if we discharge patients with chronic organ dysfunction, then we don't have uh, long survival ch 
chance for those kind of patients. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. I mean, people who have lingering organ damage, um, I suspect, do have increased risk of, um, you know, uh, late mortality. And we know that there's this very high um, of risk of late mortality Um uh, in prior studies, we've estimated that uh, about one in five patients who survives the sepsis hospitalization goes on to die sometime in the next two years due to lingering consequences or lingering effects of sepsis, meaning that it's not explained by their age or to medical conditions that they had prior to sepsis. So I think you're absolutely right that the, this lingering damage causes morbidity. It also causes late mortality. Okay, another question. I know your study is uh, especially about uh, microbiomes. Mm -hmm. We are using antibiotics, sometimes less, sometimes more than necessary, and uh, we are losing our microflora. What can we do to speed up microbiome repopulation? Right. No, I think this is a, a, a critically important question. And there was just recently a study that was published in Nature where they gave uh, symbiotics to about 4,500 neonates in India, and they found a significant reduction in the incidence of sepsis. And so my sort of question, what I wonder is whether we will not be using this for more types of patients, and particularly patients who have survived sepsis, where we know microbiome is frequently disrupted, and we know patients have an incredibly high risk of recurrent sepsis. I will say we don't have specifically data in this patient population, um, but I'm hoping that, you know, in the next um, five years that we should have data on that, and I'm hoping that that will be a potentially effective therapy. Uh, okay, one more question. According to your results, 19% of the post-discharge infections are occurring at the same site with same organisms. And 28% of patients occurring at the same site, but those are culture negative. Okay, it's repeating at the same site. Something should be wrong because it's occurring mainly at the same site, previous infection site. What we are missing? Yeah, I think that there's, you know, several different answers. And, you know, we didn't have enough people in that study to really try to tease it out, but I've got a few hypotheses. So one, I think, is that um, there's people who have... Um, you know, chronic lung disease who may be colonized and are at increased risk for pneumonia. And then they're just sort of always going to be at increased risk for pneumonia if they're colonized with a particular bug and have sort of local anatomic abnormalities because of some sort of chronic comorbidity, such as chronic respiratory disease. But then I also wonder if there's perhaps local microbiome disruptions or local immune system dysfunction um, that could also be contributing. Because again, many of these are culture negative. They're not necessarily um, the same bug for the recurrent admission. And typically, if you are colonized with something, you will be able to grow it out. So I suspect that there's a couple different mechanisms um, and that there's certainly more work to be done to try to tease that out and to see if there's sort of local therapies we can do um, to try to reduce recurrent sepsis. Okay, thank you very much. There are more questions to ask you, but with no time, I hope we can ask more at the discussion period. Thank you very much, Dr. Prescott. Great, thank you. Uh, okay, our speaker is Flavia Makoda. Flavia is Professor of Intensive Care and Chair of the Intensive Care Session of Anesthesiology, Pain and Intensive Care Department 
at the Federal University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. She has been working with the Latin American Sepsis Institute since its foundation in 2005. She is a member of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign International Guidelines Committee. She is a member of the Executive Board of Global Sepsis Alliance and also member of Executive Committee for the World Sepsis Day. She is also a member of the Executive Committee and Scientific Committee for the Brazilian Research in Intensive Care Network. A lot of work for Marco Flavia. And now we are switching to her uh, presentation. And uh, the heading of his speech is the new sepsis definitions, pros and cons. Please, Makada, microphone is yours. Thank you, Nekmiti. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here and talk uh, about the new sepsis definitions. As you know, uh, sepsis is now defined as a life-threatening uh, organ dysfunction associated with a dysregulated uh, horse uh, uh, response to uh, an infection. And uh, uh, as we know, there are many pros and cons of these definitions. Let's start with the last numbers. Uh, it is true that the new definition brought some attention to clinical signs that otherwise were neglected, like the reduced level of consciousness and the respiratory rate. It is also true that uh, due to the high specificity, the new definitions might be better for uh, the assessment of new therapies. And it's also true uh, that the new definitions, for the first time, were based in data, because the last definitions uh, were, more, were more based on expert opinion. And uh, now uh, these definitions were based on a large database coming mostly from U.S., but also from German. But anyway, from high-income countries, which is not, which is uh, actually uh, an issue. But the reason for that is that we don't have data coming coming from the uh, low and middle-income countries. The second point, which is also a uh, good thing, is the simplification of the nomenclature, because uh, uh, that thing about severe sepsis and sepsis. It was a little bit too complicated. And to send the proper message, calling sepsis a severe thing is a good thing. To associate sepsis with organ dysfunction, simplify the message that we have to do to send to everyone, lay people and healthcare professions. The third positive point is that SIRS is no longer required for the definition. It is good because sometimes we have very sick patients that do not uh, comply with the SERS criteria. They don't have any SERS criteria, but they certainly had sepsis or sepsis shock. However, it is, uh, uh, we need to say that the SERS is still important for screening because screening using SERS will let us find infected patients and finding infected patients is a key, a key step to find septic patients. So what are the problems? I would say there are three major issues. The first one is the use of the variation in SOFA score as the clinical criteria to define organ dysfunction. Why this is a uh, problem? 
Uh, actually, this is a slide that Mervyn Singer showed in a recent uh, uh, meeting in Brazil. And he said, we should not uh, stop to calculate SOFA scores. We need to look at our patient. And if the patient has any organ dysfunction, and here we have lactate included, we need to act, which means we don't need the score to prompt us to act. This means that at that side, we should not use this variation in SOFA score to define or to see that a patient has sepsis. This brings us a problem because at that side, we will not use the definition. And it is not good when we have a definition that we cannot use at the bedside. It's not good when we have a definition that can only be used or was meant to use in epidemiological or research. Uh, another problem is that the, uh, uh, the variation is SOFA score was chosen as a definition of organ dysfunction based on rocky curves. The rocky curve for the variation in SOFA score was better than the rocky curve for SIRS, and that was the reason why it was selected. However, I don't need a rocky curve to see that SOFA would predict mortality or the need for ICU better than some inflammatory uh, criteria. Of course, SOFA will predict this better. SOFA score was not compared with our previous definition of severe sepsis, which was any organ dysfunction. And this is a major problem. Another problem is a philosophical one. Why do we need to base our definition in a rocky curve, which uh, will bring us to the better balance between sensitivity and specificity? We in the low-income countries are still seeking for definitions or seeking for sensitivity, while this might not be dangerous or in the high-income countries, which are now seeking for more specific definitions. And the reality is completely different. For instance, recently we had the opportunity to publish in Lancet Infectious Disease this study in a random selection of 50% of all Brazilian ICUs. And we show that our mortality rate, at least in the ICUs, is 55%, which is really very high. So our reality is different. So I think that we need to look at simple definitions and sens sensitive ones. And for instance, if we use SOFIS score of two, we will live outside of the sepsis definitions, patients with hypotension and reduced level of conscience. As this patient, we're going to have only a SOFIS score of one. The other problem is the definition of septic shock. As we know, septic shock is now defined by the presence of lact a lactate over two after fluid replacement and the need of vasopressors. And this end was voted against a NOR, and the difference in votes were just two, which means it could have been a NOR, lactate, or vasopressors. And we think that it's not fair with many countries in the world that doesn't have lactate available. For instance, there is this paper coming from Uganda where 89% of the institutions can never measure lactate. So 
how can we have a definition of septic shock that cannot be used by uh, the low uh, and many middle-income countries? The third problem, it was the new score, the QSOFA score. As you know, together with the new definitions, there was a suggestion that there is this new score that would identify patients that are prone to die or prone to, to, to be admitted in the ICU. And the positive QSOFA score is composed by two of the three components, a higher uh, respiratory rate, a low systolic blood pressure, and a reduced level of conscience. There is no, no problem at all in having QSOFA as a severity score. However, in the paper, there was this figure that suggested that QSOFA might be used to screen patients and to identify patients that have sepsis. It is true that the authors of the task force have clearly stated in the paper that this score needs to be validated. And it is also true that Marvin Singer, for instance, in the same lecture that he gave in Brazil, stated clearly that QSOFA has never intended to be a screening tool. However, that figure in the paper have caused a lot of confusion. And many, many uh, uh, hospitals, many emergency departments, and in many wards all around the world, people started to use QSOFA as a screening for sepsis, which might have generated a lot of issues. A screening tool is something completely different from a decision-making tool. QSOFA is a severity score. It is not validated as a decision-making tool. And the reason for that is because a decision-making tool in a deadly disease like sepsis needed to have a high sensitivity. And all the papers that have been published after the sepsis 3 definition have, have uh, uh, demonstrated, except for this one, have demonstrated that QSOFA in patients from the emergency departments have a low sensitivity, which means that using this strategy might miss patients uh, with... Uh, high risk of death. All these pros and cons, the new sepsis definitions, are uh, uh, explained in detail in this paper that is an open access in June of Critical Care. This paper was produced by the Quality Improvement Committee from the Global Sepsis Alliance and also from the Executive Committee of Global Sepsis Alliance. And I really suggest that you can have a look on it. So in conclusion, the definitions have changed, but our patient, he didn't. So we do not calculate SOFA to act, but we really need to use the broad sepsis 3 definition, which is life-threatening organ dysfunction to act. The old definition is not and was not perfect. It lacks both sensitivity and specificity. The new proposal has some nice advantages. It is the first data-driven definition. There is no need for search criteria, and the nomenclature is simpler. However, the use of the variation in SOFA score is not simple. 
and the validation process was inadequate, as it was against SERS, and not against the previous definition of severe sepsis. So there is no evidence that Delta SOFA is better than what we used before. QSOFA is not a screening or a decision-making tool. It is a severity score. And any this definition that increases specificity will decrease sensitivity. And this might not be good for our quality improvement initiatives. Thank you very much. Flavia, thank you very much. Uh, you are mainly at the practical side, uh, uh, especially for low-income countries like my country. Uh, you are right. It's uh, maybe difficult to calculate so far in uh, certain conditions, but I would like to uh, tell that so far, okay, needs some lab results, but at least four components of SOFA score is coming fro from clinical uh, follow-up. And accordingly, and the, uh, uh, together with the screening tool, uh, quick SOFA scoring uh, screening system, do you offer us that should we change the scoring system according to the low-income inc countries' conditions? Actually, no, no neck meeting. No, all the papers I show came from high-income countries, and all of them, the sensitivity of the QSOFA is too low. The problem with QSOFA is not the variables that compound it. I mean, we have been using hypotension, reduced level of consciousness, and dyspnea or tachypnea as alert signs for 10 years now. These are the uh, dysfunctions that our, our nurses, these are the dysfunction that the surviving sepsis campaign used for 10 years. There is nothing new in the QSOFA score, absolutely nothing new. The problem with the QSOFA is the use of two components. That's the, the most uh, uh, dangerous thing. I mean, use one of the three components of the QSOFA that's what we've been using for 10 years. So that's good. Of course it is good. Use any dysfunction, it's good. Using two of the three components, we'll select a very severity patient and we'll miss patients with a single organ dysfunction. That is the point. Okay, okay. Thank you, Flora. Flavia. Uh, very nice presentation and good answer. And uh, time is going to pass, and I should switch to the sixth uh, speaker of the session. Uh, is Flip Schutz from Canton Hospital, Aura, Switzerland. Prof. Schutz is a board-certified internist and endocrinologist. He is currently uh, he currently has a professorship from the Swiss National Foundation and works clinically at the Medical University Department at Canton uh, Spital area in the emergency, emergency department and the endocrine unit and is in the charge of clinical studies 
focusing on clinical nutrition as well as on improved triage and management of patients throughout their hospital stay with the use of novel biomarkers, particularly procalcitonin. Hearing of the speech is the potential of biomarkers for antibiotic stewardships. So wait, please, it's, it's your turn. Well, thank you very much for your kind invitation. Um, and I look forward to talk a little bit about the potential of biomarkers, particularly for antibiotic stewardship. So I have some ongoing research with diagnostic companies as a potential conflict of interest, which I would like to mention. But then I would like to start and talk about sepsis. And while the big white shark is a very dangerous animal, I think sepsis is a much bigger killer. Um, and we have learned from a lot of recent trials that it's not easy to lower mortality and to improve management of patients by any new fancy drugs. All these new trials really have been disappointing. So we have to come back to the very important points in sepsis care, which is early recognition of patients with sepsis. I think initial resuscitation with antibiotics and also fluids is key but then also supportive management and diagnostic management are the two components. And so I would like to talk just a little bit about how PCT can help us in these different uh, steps. So first in early recognition and also rule out of sepsis, how can it help us with antibiotic management, diagnostic management, and help us in the overall um, assessment of the patient and also for duration of antibiotics. So I would like to answer three different questions. First, does PCT provide prognostic information in patients with sepsis? Second, can PCT improve antibiotic decisions? So can it help us to rule out bacterial infection in low-risk patients? But also, can it help us to monitor patients which are eligible for early stop of antibiotic therapy? And most importantly, my third question, does the use of PCT improve clinical outcomes in our sepsis patients? I think PCT is an interesting marker when we look at the regulation because PCT is mainly regulated, upregulated by pro-bacterial cytokines, including interleukin bombitat and TNF-alpha. However, it also has another regulation step which is a block of the upregulation by other cytokines, interferon gamma, which is a cytokine released in response to viral infections. So I think this regulation is particular for PCT and makes this marker more specific towards bacterial infection and sepsis compared to other markers like uh, CRP or white block count. So it seems to be a more specific marker and helpful in the assessment of a septic patient. So let me go to the first question. Does PCT provide prognostic information? Well, interestingly, the regulation of PCT is important for its prognostic use. So PCT increases within about 6 to 12 hours and shows a steady decrease if a patient responds well to therapy. We have also learned from clinical studies that patients not responding to therapy 
have a much less pronounced decrease in PCT. And so if you don't see that a patient clears the PCT level, this usually means that the patient has ongoing infection and the resolution of infection is not well controlled. So when you compare cohorts of patients with sepsis um, and you compare survivors of sepsis with non-survivors, you will see that the survivors have much high, have also very high PCT levels upon admission. However, if they uh, decrease their PCT level, that's usually a very good sign. And in patients not surviving their sepsis episode, you often see a non-decrease in PCT. And so we have recently done a large US-based study, including 13 different sites across the United States, where we validated that the PCT decrease over four days has a very strong prognostic value. And so if a patient cannot reduce his PCT level by 80% or more, his mortality is about doubled compared to patients who have a strong decrease in PCT. So the monitoring of this marker really provides prognostic information, which is in addition and beyond the prognostic information you will get just from clinical management of patients or from other scores such as the SOFA score. So prognostic information is one thing, but what are you doing with your prognostic information? And so in the case of sepsis and PCT, I think the most important therapeutic um, consequence of using the marker is really the change in antibiotic management. And so a variety of larger trials have looked at the, at the impact of PCT on the management of patients. And so these trials were mostly randomized controlled trials comparing patients with and without the use of PCT. We have done a meta-analysis in collaboration with, the, with Cochrane and have looked at a, a large variety of trials, particularly for patients with acute respiratory tract infections in different settings and with different severities of infection. So most of these trials have used similar protocols, um, how they incorporated PCT uh, for the management of patients. So for the lower risk setting, so for patients for primary care or emergency department patients, the main cutoff that was used was at 0.25. And if a patient was not at high risk and had a lower level, then the recommendation was not to use antibiotics or to stop antibiotics. And you can see that the, this, um, uh, this these protocols really had a strong effect on antibiotic use. So in our, in our meta-analysis, there was about a 65% reduction in antibiotic exposure for primary care patients and a 66% reduction for patients with bronchitis. Now, these are low-risk settings and low-risk patients. And for the higher-risk settings, so patients in the ICU with sepsis, the protocols were adapted. So first, in these trials, a higher PCT cutoff was used. So the cutoff was 0.5, for, for which sepsis was deemed to be unlikely. And PCT was not as much used for the initial management of the patient, but it was more used for a, as a monitoring marker for deciding when to stop antibiotics. 
So if you had a patient come in the ICU with sepsis or suspicion of sepsis and the patient was very sick, you would still use antibiotics on the first day to treat this patient, but then you would measure PCT and would monitor its course. And if you would find a very low PCT or a fast drop in PCT, the algorithm would encourage you then to stop your antibiotics because this would indicate resolution of illness. So these algorithms have really resulted also in a reduction of antibiotic exposure, mainly by early stop of antibiotics. And for the ICU population, it was about a 25% reduction in antibiotics. And for patients with pneumonia, it was almost a 40% reduction in the use um, of antibiotics, mainly by shortening the courses of antibiotics. Recently, we have also learned that PCT protocols work very well in very um, small um, patients. Uh, the Neopin study that was just um, published in The Lancet um, a couple of weeks ago has also shown that for the very small patients, um, PC, the, the use of PCT results in a relevant and significant reduction in antibiotic use, and there was no safety signal associated with the use of PCT despite the lower use of antibiotics. So use um, of PCT to guide antibiotics really results in reduced antib antibiotic exposure. But can we use the marker and, um, for improving patient outcomes, or do we patients put at risk if we use lower, um, if we use less antibiotics? And so there was one key study published um, in 2016 by a group from the Netherlands, Evelyn De Jong and colleagues in the Lancet Infectious Disease. And this is the largest study today looking at patients in the ICU with sepsis, including more than 1,500 patients across 15 hospitals in the Netherlands. And the study showed that first PCT was associated with a strong reduction in antibiotics, but also it was associated with a significant reduction in mortality. So the use of PCT really improved the outcome of these patients. So based on all this evidence that we have gathered from trials, recent guidelines also suggest that the use of low procalcitonin should assist clinicians in the discontinuation of empiric antibiotics when there is no evidence of infection uh, in these patients. So again, I think for the sepsic patients, it's important to use antibiotics in the beginning when you are not sure what's going on in the patient, but the low PCT or the strong drop in PCT has been shown to be a very strong signal to indicate that you can stop your antibiotics. Now, use of PCT is not um, as simple as it may sound, and there are several pitfalls. So first of all, I think it's important to realize that PCT cutoff ranges depend on the clinical setting. So it's a difference if you're in primary care or in a septic patient in the ICU. We also have to realize that all sepsis markers we have today, including PCT, are not perfect markers, and we have false positives and false negatives that occur. So in a patient after a surgical procedure, you will find an increase in PCT just due to the stress of surgery. So you have to really um, combine your clinical knowledge, your clinical assessment of the patient 
with PCT. Otherwise, you will not be able to use this marker efficiently. And also importantly, a single measurement of PCT is of limited value, and we should always use this marker, particularly for the sepsis population, as a monitoring marker. So last, I think, um, although there is important trials for sepsis, we need to conduct further studies because there are several infections which have not been um, um, well studied, such as endocarditis or pancreatitis or other types of infections. And so I think in the near future, we will learn much more how to use PCT efficiently in these different types of infection. Today, really for the respiratory tract, and for the septic patient in the ICU, we have strong data, but we need to do further research to better understand how we use this biomarker efficiently. And with that, I would like to close, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you very much. Philip, thank you very much, especially uh, for your very clear presentation. You, you give to us very clear messages. I would like to ask one question. If we want to follow up those patients, septic patients, for prognosis or for anti antibiotic uh, decisions, uh, how frequently we should measure PCT levels? So I think usually um, you can measure PCT um, every 24 or 48 hours. So usually in the in in uh, the normal medical ward, um, we recommend uh, to measure PCT every 48 hours. I think in the critical care setting, in an ICU patient, um, measurement um, every day or every other day uh, is a good frequency um, to have a good readout of the marker um, and uh, to really give you feedback um, if a patient um, is in trouble uh, or you need to change his um, his therapeutic management. Okay, another question. How can we use PCD levels for viral or parasitic infections? So I think there is a lot of studies comparing viral infection um, to bacterial infection. So let's say you have a patient coming in with a clinical syndrome of pneumonia and uh, you know there is influenza season. So you would expect it could also be an influenza viral infection or a typical bacterial infection. So if this patient come in the, comes into the ICU and his PCT level is very low, so let's say below 0.5, I think the viral infection becomes much more likely. And so for this patient, you really should do the viral testing and you should consider, you know, antiviral therapy. If the same patient, you know, has a very high PCT, it makes viral um, infection less likely and it argues more for a typical bacterial infection. Also, I think for the viral infected patients, you always have the issue of bacterial superinfection. So studies have also shown that if you have a viral influenza, let's say, or a bacterial superinfection, you will find that PCT in these patients go up much higher. So, so I think it is also helpful um, because we don't have really gold standard uh, for bacterial or viral infection in these patients. Um, but I think PCT can be another piece in the puzzle of these complex patients and point us to one or the other direction. Okay. There's a comment from uh, audiences. 
the PCT measurement may be so costly for low-income countries. It's good to shorten the antibiotic treatment, but we can't use it. This is just a comment. Well, I think it's an important comment. Um, and, and, you know, costs are a big issue. So there have been um, uh, several cost um, analysis studies. Um, and I think when you talk about costs, you have to look at the overall equation. So, you, of course, you have costs for your marker, PCT, or, an, or other um, uh, diagnostic tools you use. But then you have also potential savings, which are antibiotics, which are very expensive in the ICU. And you have other savings, such as less resistance of antibiotics in your population. Um, and so I think, you know, in the end, you have to do the, the overall calculations. I think as long as you use PCT and you act upon your level, so you actually use your level for clinical decision-making and you have therapeutic consequences, um, you know, then I think it's well-invested money. If you just uh, measure PCT in a patient just to see at a level, but you don't change anything in your patient, then I agree, then it's just an expensive marker that doesn't have any benefit. And this is why I would only recommend the use of PCT really in clinical protocols and to have your physicians educated so they will act upon the levels um, and, and you will have these, um, these positive findings that were you know, demonstrated in the clinical trials. But I think it's an important comment, and costs are more and more an issue, um, you know, in, in, in the different healthcare systems. Then, then intensivists should put pressure on hospital managers to use PCT measurement just to decrease antibiotic cost. It's the way, I think. Yes. You know, I think in many hospitals, you have different budgets. So you have the, uh, the pharmacy budget, which concerns about, uh, it's concerned about the antibiotics. And then you have the lab budget, which is concerned about the diagnostic markers. And so if you use PCT or, or other diagnostic markers, you will have more costs in the lab. And may, you have some gains, you know, in the, um, in the pharmacy. Um, and so um, I think these two, you know, departments have to speak to each other and really see the overall benefit for the system and not so much only for their own department. Um, but it's a complex um, discussion, uh, of course. Okay. Thank you very much, Philip. Very clear presentation and very clear answer. And we are Thank you very much. For, we are switching to our seventh speaker of the session. Dr. Michael Bauer from Vienna University, from Germany. Uh, he's professor of anesthesiology and critical care and chief executive director of Center for Sepsis Control Care at Vienna University Hospitals. Dr. Bauer's interest is the field of molecular mechanisms and system biology of sepsis and shock-related organ dysfunctions. His topic is novel and emerging diagnostic. Dr. Bauer, it's your turn, please. Thank you, Dr. Unal. And I guess I can just stop where Philip should start where Philip should stop. And now we are moving from the host side and the biomarkers to the diagnostics of the underlying infection. And despite all the critic we heard tonight from Flavia about uh, Sepsis 3 definition, I guess, 
uh, we are still on the same payroll with respect to the significance of uh, sepsis as the uh, the infection as the triggering event of sepsis. So uh, there's a big need to uh, identify early the causative pathogens that trigger organ dysfunction uh, in the septic host. And uh, what uh, sepsis 3 also offers is an interesting conceptual framework to um, understand and um, perhaps better assess the uh, interaction of pre-existing organ dysfunction and its deterioration by, uh, for instance, developing nosocomial um, infection. And I guess here we still have, even when we abandon the CS concept, we have a, a significant um, diagnostic uncertainty uh, whether uh, the systemic inflammatory the inflammatory response we observe in these patients is triggered by this newly developing infection or not. And on the other hand side, we have this desperate need to cover the uh, triggering uh, infection appropriately with antibiotics as inappropriate therapy or lack to achieve source control is associated with uh, deterioration and uh, poorer outcome. Um, in these patients. And as we are all painfully aware, this inappropriate therapy primarily in nowadays uh, ICUs um, results from the uh, crisis of uh, multi-resistant bacteria. And uh, there are even uh, concerns that we are more and more frequently um, confronted with very difficult to treat uh, bacteria and um, as a flip side, um, we use very liberally in these life-threatening infections, very broad um, antibiotics. And this should, um, at least in the best of all worlds, uh, decrease this liberal use by better or improved diagnostics. And we are all uh, also painfully aware that blood culture is the gold standard to identify pathogens in sepsis is theoretically highly sensitive as it can pick up very few pathogens in a 10 milliliter sample, but uh, it is restricted to metabolic active bacteria and um, there are a lot of problems associated with blood culture such as uh, that they may be falsely negative if a concurrent antibiotic therapy is initiated or if they are fastidious or difficult um, to culture bacteria. And I guess what is really the major limitation is the time requirement of up to several days and the overall low detection rate um, in the range of 10 to 20%. Furthermore, and perhaps reflecting the um, clinically limited information you can get from blood culture, intensivists are not particularly uh, careful about um, getting these uh, blood cultures uh, collected. They don't really pay too much attention, and this is reflected in the perception from microbiologists that uh, report on long transportation times, low number of incoming sets, and many false positives due to a lack of um, 
yeah, careful uh, conducting of uh, blood culture uh, in the clinical routine. So this has prompted uh, the need and the search for alternatives and several molecular techniques or uh, alternative molecular tests um, are currently uh, discussed. And I would first start with the measurement of pattern, uh, pathogen-associated molecular patterns as an alternative, for instance, what is a particular prominent problem is the detection of candida albicans in critically ill patients and the use of uh, biomarkers such as one 3 beta d glucane or MANAN and anti-MANAN um, antibodies has been recommended. In the latest version, it's no longer uh, in of the surviving sepsis campaign, but uh, this is primarily reflecting um, yeah. Uh, observation that many groups ha have made, and uh, I show here, for example, data that we obtained in patients um, that underwent cardio, uh, um, cardiac surgery involving cardiopulmonary bypass, and these patients have frequently very high levels of uh, beta-glucan, which uh, may really limit its use in surgical ICUs. On the other hand side, Molecular tests based on the principle um, uh, of PCR are really uh, having a very uh, big potential to improve diagnostics. And I would like to uh, introduce a couple of these tests and also think about a bit uh, the potential of PCR. So if you amplify nucleic acids from pathogens, you can significantly uh, cut down the time requirements compared to culture-based assays. And uh, if you look, for instance, at the performance um, of these tests and, for instance, compare it to the procalcitonin uh, that has been um, uh, just broadly discussed by Philip Schütz, you can see that there is an association not only with the um, um, positivity of the blood culture but also of the PCR. Uh, and the same holds true for C-reactive protein. There is an association with the positive PCR um, amplicon. And uh, what is also important on the right-hand side, you can see here in real uh, life, we assessed on our ward how long it takes until we get um, a culture or a PCR result to the ward. And if you look, uh, for instance, at the time required to get 50% um, of the uh, results back, it's uh, in the range of 70 hours uh, for culture, but only in the range of 21 hours uh, for PCR in real life with limited access, for instance, to technicians to, to take care of these samples at night, for instance. So when and how can PCR help to improve diagnostic performance in the clinical context, I guess, uh, this is taken here from a meta-analysis we conducted um, uh, some three or four years ago. And you can see there is a higher rate of positivity for PCR overall, one and a half times as many positive results compared to the conventional blood culture. But the concordance between the blood culture and the PCR also the concordance with, with other isolates uh, from conventional microbiology is in the range of 80%. So 
So approximately 80% of uh, culture results can be predicted early on uh, by a PCR amplicon. So if you just break it down to receiver operating curves, this uh, essentially indicates um, that PCR can serve to rule in sepsis in a low pretest probability uh, population, and this holds true for overall septic patients, but uh, as well if you look uh, differentially at bacteria um, or fungal amplicons. So uh, there are currently a lot of very interesting developments in the technical uh, performance of these kits so that they can be performed with very limited hands-on time compared to previous attempts. And this is, for instance, shown here for the film array. So essentially, many of these test systems uh, rely on um, cartouches that are very easy uh, to handle and can be easily used in the uh, clinical context to get very rapid results. And um, I picked here just as an example a panel for meningitis and encephalitis. So if you have a target population of suspected CNS infection, for instance, in the emergency department or in pediatrics, you not only get um, a rapid result uh, for bacteria, which is really new, you get also typical associated viruses such as CME or herpes virus uh, family or even uh, fungi such, such as cryptococcus neoformans. So this is really uh, a quantum leap compared to conventional uh, diagnostics and uh, looking at these panels, they are popping up um, and e each and every year there are new panels um, and once again, here in the context what we discussed um, on the use of antibiotics and PCT to help with a stewardship uh, for respiratory infections, if you look here at uh, the PCR respiratory panels, you also see that along with the typical uh, bacterial pathogens, you also get uh, information on viruses, which makes it a lot more um, reasonable to, for instance, uh, withhold antibiotics in uh, patients. And uh, in our hands, we currently use these panels, for instance, in the immunocompromised host, for instance, uh, patients that have been on the ICU for a prolonged period of time or in hemato-oncology patients. And as I already made the point, this, these are promising techniques and uh, they are coming now uh, and are more easily available, uh, although there are still data lacking regarding the clinical utility, but in the light of the current um, uh, multi-resistance problems, I guess uh, it's about time to uh, subject them to clinical utility testing. So um, there are potential alternatives. It's always the key issue. Can they uh, pick up resistance, in particular uh, for multi-resistant gram-negative pathogens? I won't talk today about next-generation sequencing as um, this is restricted really to the, uh, the genes and this not necessarily reflects the phenotype. Um, there is some interesting development in the field, for instance, of mass spectrometry, but also 
um, uh, with respect to a substantially improved phenotypic characterization combining molecular and conventional uh, culture approaches. And these are the techniques that I would like to address. It's a pity that the Eredica system, which had been introduced by Abbott, is no longer available. Um, it's still in its emphasis. It's technically very demanding, but the potential um, of this PCR, essentially PCR-based technology, is great because it potentially also holds promise to identify uh, resistance uh, genes um, uh, in addition to just characterization of the um, underlying pathogen. And this has been tested uh, in Europe, for instance, um, uh, by um, a clinical study addressing rapid diagnosis of infection in the critically ill. And essentially, uh, this showed that independent um, um, arbitrators uh, suggested that these techniques can potentially result in altered treatment in even more than half of the patients. Uh, and it's also confirming that the rate of positive results increases uh, with these uh, techniques. So last but not least, I would like um, to address the uh, phenotypic characterization, the so-called accelerate uh, uh, system. Essentially, what this system does is to identify pathogens on a single cell level by fluorescence in situ hybridization and also assessing the phenotypic um, resistance using morphokinetics uh, on a single cell level. So you can get very um, important information about resistance. It's a, still an expensive technique. It requires molecular biology and sophisticated um, handling, but uh, it offers currently the best potential information um, to really uh, identify phenotypic uh, resistance in isolated pathogens, and this in a, in a very rapid uh, fashion. Uh, this may even be in the future be uh, also achieved or improved by uh, other light-based techniques. It's also similar, uh, feasible to use spectroscopy, for instance, to identify uh, pathogens. And just this is taken from the group of Ute Neugebauer. Um, she has really um, achieved a direct assessment, for instance, um, of uh, a pathogen uh, from a urinary sample with these light-based techniques within 35 uh, minutes um, by just identifying individual uh, bacteria once again on a single cell level. And you can, with the same technique, in approximately two hours, also uh, using microfluidics-supported um, administration of antibiotics for instance, assess also phenotypic resistance, in this case against vancomycin, for instance, in um, E. fecalis. So this can be uh, introduced um, as a, a, a practical test uh, within the next couple of years, and there are many of these techniques right now um, evolving. So to summarize, uh, the potential of conventional and in particular the 
combination of conventional with molecular techniques, we can yield more positive results with these uh, approaches and we can reduce the time to result dramatically. And what is even more important in the light of the um, resistance crisis, these uh, techniques are right now at least principally able to uh, provide substantially more information regarding resistance in the early time frame of the first uh, hours or the first day uh, after life-threatening infection develops. And they are all ready to be used and they warrant prospective testing regarding uh, their uh, clinical utility. And I would like to to finish with this uh, statement um, that is meanwhile 20 years old, but uh, it still holds true from Roger Bone. We should spend more time to achieve an accurate diagnosis and less time for searching a magic bullet. Thank you for your attention. Dr. Barr, uh, yes. thank you very much. Uh, very interesting presentation, and you are showing us our future. There are some questions from audiences. What kind of samples are you using for testing blood, aspirates of, uh, of respiratory systems, also tissue samples? Is it possible yes. to use some of them? Yes, uh, actually, um, these molecular techniques, uh, due to the time restrictions, I focus primarily on blood-based uh, tests, but uh, these techniques are also available for, for instance, uh, bronchioalveolar lavage, but also for tissue samples. And this may be very important um, in um, difficult-to-treat infections such as um, 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 implant-associated um, uh, infections or, once again, fastidious and difficult-to-culture uh, pathogens, so uh, there is a, a big uh, promise, at least, of these techniques, and um, uh, they are currently uh, also evaluated beyond the use of blood samples, uh, primarily for uh, respiratory samples and uh, osteocutaneous uh, specimen uh, in orthopedic infections. Okay. But also in the also, also, sorry, I also endocarditis, for instance, to, uh, to give uh, a okay. practical example. Okay, uh, if we diagnose with these techniques infections, uh, microorganisms, and decide to use or correct antibiotics within hours, even in minutes, no value of cost of these techniques, these new diagnostic techniques. However, I wanted to know the cost of these techniques for each sample. Yeah, actually, this is uh, very difficult to answer. So I would uh, say that uh, some of these molecular techniques that require sophisticated molecular uh, probes, such as uh, fluorescence in situ hybridization, you are in the range of 150 euros per sample. But the light-based techniques, so if you use, for instance, spectroscopy, and that's the need uh, or the, the, the really interesting aspect of these techniques, 
they will be very cheap um, per sample because you don't require, uh, except for laser equipment, you don't require like antibodies or um, uh, hybridization uh, reagents. So this is um, this holds a great um, promise uh, if these techniques uh, can be developed um, and. I'm uh, very confident that this is going to happen. Uh, the related costs per sample are low. I see. Uh, there is one more question, but I couldn't explain it very well because I'm not microbiologist. Uh, the question is how to decrease cost of PCR-based techniques for LMIC, minimal inhibitory concentration. Do you have any answer for this yeah. question? Yes. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm a microbiologist neither. I'm an uh, intensive care physician. Um, so I can't uh, answer really this technical question. But right now, uh, MIC is um, from the uh, techniques that I presented, as far as I know, only achievable with um, uh, phenotypic characterization, for instance, as shown uh, here for um, the um, uh, accelerate uh, system. So I'm not aware that currently in a, uh, a clinically available test you can assess with PCR MICs. I'm not aware of that. Same like me. Okay. Dr. Bauer, thank you very much for your presentation. Now we are switching to our last speaker, uh, Professor Richard Hodgkins from Washington University, United States. He's professor in anesthesiology, medicine, surgery, molecular biology, and pharmacology, and has board certification on anesthesiology, critical care anesthesia, and internal medicine. He has served as president of the Shock Society and has served on several NIH study sections, including as a permanent member of the NIH Surgery Anesthesiology Trauma Study Section. The focus of the Hodgkin's lab is defining new methods for the treatment of sepsis. His international law for his seminal research explaining the role of lymphocyte program cell death as an underlying cause of sepsis. His topic of speech is novel and emerging treatments. Dr. Hodgkins, please, it's your turn. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be uh, uh, in speaking at this uh, great uh, forum. So, um, I would like to acknowledge uh, my research funding from the National Institutes of Health, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and GlaxoSmithKline, and we are doing two clinical trials. So uh, to begin, uh, what I want in this brief uh, presentation is uh, an overview, take-home messages, that there are new findings which reveal a key role for immunosuppression and sepsis. And because of that, it builds a case for use of these new drugs, which boost the immune system. I'm going to talk briefly about some of the current immunotherapy trials and give you a vision into uh, the future. So uh, the traditional 
theory about the pathogenesis of sepsis uh, was that sepsis was due to a overabundant, overexuberant, hyperinflammatory response consisting of fever, shock, and organ failure, and that this was uh, what led to death. Uh, this prevailing concept of uncontrolled systemic inflammation was dominant for many years. The, this made sense because when they uh, did animal models of endotoxin, where they injected endotoxin or live bacteria, there was a very fulminant course. And when they discovered tumor necrosis factor, TNF, and other pro-inflammatory cytokines, they were markedly elevated in these endotoxin bacterial models. And you could prevent death by blocking inflammation and cytokines. So uh, what there were over uh, 50 trials of various agents which blocked inflammation or blocked these inflammatory cytokines. When all of these have failed to date, uh, this led investigators and physicians to go back and really study what is going on. Are we barking up the wrong tree? There's a, a kind of a nice uh, saying about just because the path is well trodden does not mean you're heading in the right direction. So uh, a new paradigm, which I'm going to present here, is that both pro and anti-inflammatory responses occur early and simultaneously in sepsis. Relative immunosuppression which involves both the innate and the adaptive arms of the immune system, can occur soon after sepsis begins, and that immunity and depressed immune function can you know, be uh, persistent for weeks or months after sepsis. Patients with this immune suppression may die due to their failure to eradicate the organisms, the bacteria that cause the primary infection, or a lot of patients that are in the ICU develop these new secondary infections. They get hospital-acquired infections, which ultimately leads to death. So um, what the new paradigm is that both pro- and anti-inflammatory processes occur on the early phase of sepsis. And yes, some patients can die in the early hyperinflammatory phase of sepsis. We, we take care of these patients in the ICU, and the patients come in in fulminant shock. But we've gotten much better at keeping these patients alive. And the patients now progress usually into this more chronic phase of this immune suppression, where they've lost a lot of their uh, ability to eradicate the infections. There's a great deal of uh, death of the lymphocytes, the white blood cells that are very important in fighting infection. There's an increase in these suppressor cells that T-regulatory cells and myeloid-derived suppressor cells, which impair the host's ability to fight infection. So what we will see is what we will we'll hope to see is ways to uh, restore, to boost the patient's immunity. We can learn a lot about how to boost immunity in sepsis by looking at what's going on now in cancer, in oncology. Immunotherapy 
is now the most exciting area in treatment of patients with cancer. Uh, they previously um, had felt that immunotherapy would not work in cancer, but recent developments with the discovery of these new mechanisms of immune suppression have really opened up uh, new approaches to cancer, and it's one of the most uh, it's been startling in how effective it's been in improving survival in patients with multiple different types of tumors. What is really particularly interesting is that there are many similarities in the depressed immune system in patients with cancer and in patients with sepsis. They overlap. They share many of the immunosuppressive mechanisms. This is felt to be due to the fact that both conditions, there's chronic inflammation and persistent antigen exposure. So we are learning that some of the drugs that are being used, here are the list of uh, five drugs uh, that are now in trials in patients with sepsis to boost immunity. These same drugs, GMCSF, thymosin 1 alpha, interleukin 7, and anti PD1 and PDL1, are now in trials both in sepsis and in cancer. Uh, several of them have already been approved for cancer. Now, the vision into the future immunotherapy. I believe as Dr. Bauer has alluded to before, that biomarkers will help us profile the immune status of septic patients, that we will then be able to treat them based upon their various phases in their immune system, and that we should be able to improve morbidity and mortality. This one remarkable case of a patient I'll briefly describe shows the power of immunotherapy and sepsis. This was a, a case of a 30-year-old female who uh, was a uh, uh, victim of that Brussels terrorist attack in March 2016. She had um, sustained major injuries of the pelvis, femur fractures. She had a lot of soft tissue damage and pulmonary contusion. In fact, she arrested in the emergency room. Her hospital course, uh, she was uh, resuscitated in the emergency room. Her hospital course was complicated by sepsis, by infection of the bone, osteomyelitis, uh, and she developed multi-drug resistant organisms of Enterobacteriaceae and this uh, fungal infection with mucor. Despite being treated with uh, very potent antifungal agents, they were unable to contain the mucor infection. It was invading into the abdominal organs, and surgery uh, was tried. She had her stomach removed and the spleen removed, but the infection was involving the blood vessels. The doctors there did immune phenotyping. That is, they determined what parts of her immune system were impaired, and they gave treatment with these new uh, immunotherapy, nivolumab, anti-PD-1, and interferon gamma has begun on a compassionate basis. This patient who was going to die because of this fungal infection that was uncontrolled slowly improved. She had resolution of the sepsis. Repeat CT scan showed no evidence of the tumor, and she was discharged from the hospital 80 days later. So, in conclusion, sepsis evolves into an immunosuppressive condition with poor clinical outcomes. Immunologic defects in sepsis are very similar to those occurring in cancer and suggest a common mechanism or mechanisms. Immunotherapy is 
offering great hope in cancer patients, and we speculate it will also do so in sepsis. And interventions with the potential to improve host immune function are being studied. And uh, that's uh, the end of my presentation. I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you yes. very much for your presentation. Oh, okay. It's a very difficult subject for us, for clinicians, yeah. but uh-huh. I think there's a long way to find correct and combined immunotherapeutic approach uh, for the yeah. therapy of the treatment of the sepsis. But at least we can uh, possibly explain in more detail the mechanisms uh, with your studies. Uh, I would like to ask a question. Uh-huh. Uh, how can we add microbiome theory to your results? Uh, and which theory to my results? Microbiome, the flora, enteral flora, flora of the oh yeah, uh, microbiome. Uh, yes. yes, yes, that's a great question. Um, what they have investigators have found out is that the microbiome, the bacteria in the intestine, interact with immune cells in the intestine. The intestine is the organ that has the largest number of immune cells, lymphocytes and dendritic cells, things. And that bacteria provide feedback and shape the immune response such that if you have a different type of bacteria, there have been several studies on this, the animals will respond. Their cancer, these are cancer trials, their, their cancer will respond to a certain type of immunotherapy. But if mice which don't respond to that immunotherapy, if you change their microbiome, they now will respond to that immunotherapy. So it is, you're exactly correct that the microbiome helps shape the immune response. And in sepsis, what's very important is that there's loss by programmed cell death of billions of the immune cells, the lymphocytes and dendritic cells in the in the uh, intestine, in the gastrointestinal-associated lymphoid tissues. This is very similar to what occurs in HIV patients. So the microbiome is critical in that. And we may manipulate the microbiome. I know the oncology groups are, are looking at that to manipulate the microbiome in the cancer patients to make their drugs work better. Okay, there is one question for from audiences. What do you think about sepsis observer systems? Sepsis observer uh, systems? Extracorporeal uh, observer oh. systems. Oh, I yeah, yeah. Absorption. Yes, yes. So I would say... The jury is still out on that. Uh, the the some fairly significant trials. I, I believe uh, Didier Payen published a, a, a paper on this where it really failed that endotoxin removal or, or uh, cytokine removal did, did not was not effective in uh, improving outcome. Uh, now they may be able to change these uh, uh, filters that they're using, but but. I I think at this time, there is really no definitive evidence that they are effective in sepsis. 
Okay, there's one more question from audiences. Uh, classically, we know that in, uh, steroids have immunosuppressive effects. How can we use them during sepsis? <laughs> yes, and I think that uh, there have been some remarkable tr discussion of the therapies with uh, thiamine, vitamin C, and corticosteroids. Um, and in, in this that in that chest article, um, I would say that we're there. There's probably a subset of septic patients that are in this hyperinflammatory phase that may benefit from a very short course of steroids. We know that you'd have to use low doses of steroids. And somewhere in the critical care medicine, the Society of Critical Care Medicine recommendation is 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone a day for five days, no longer. I think uh, in some of those patients, it may work uh, to improve outcome. We're going to know soon, based upon the very large trial that's being conducting in Australia and New Zealand, uh, it's called the adrenal trial, and that data should be available uh, within the next uh, few months. Personally, I don't think uh, there. I think that you must be very careful to keep your dose of steroids low and your duration short, and not use it, except in those cases, patients that have uh, the hyperinflammatory uh, septic shock that's not responding, you know, to fluids and vasopressors and avoid it as much as you can. That's my thinking on it. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Professor Hodgkins. And now we are switching to discussion period. Uh, other speakers are online now, and uh, we can uh, start to a short discussion period. And I know that some of the previous speakers have some questions I am expecting to listen to their questions, also comments. Michael, Halley, Philip, yes. and Tex should be on the line. And do you have any comment or any questions about this session, about the subjects of this session? Actually, I, I would really uh, like to, to ask Richard uh, Hotchkiss, um, what would be the suitable biomarkers to go along with your interventions, for instance, with TDE um, uh, intervention? What would you need to know about the immune status in order to um, really uh, identify patients that would benefit from these interventions? Uh, yes, Michael, and you're doing a lot of the work to help identify that. Uh, I believe you're one of the leaders in this field. and. I think that uh, looking at gene expression is one way, uh, and that's important, and that'll ultimately probably become the way. Personally, I believe that we need some functional test, rapid functional test of the lymphocytes for a reflection of adaptive immunity, and I prefer interferon gamma production because that has been shown and is increasingly shown to be critical in controlling in, in oncology, that the drugs, the immunotherapeutics that are going to work act to increase T-cell interferon gamma production. And I believe that, that therapy, immune therapy and sepsis that's going to work is going to increase T-cell interferon gamma production. I think not only is interferon gamma have important actions, 
to activate the innate immune system, but it's a measure, it's a reflection that the T cells are back working again. And they, the CD4 helper cells help control the infection. So I think personally, a functional test of uh, T cell of T cells making interferon gamma and monocytes making TNF alpha. If you had a rapid test for that, uh, the functional test. Now, what I know a lot of people are looking at is they're trying to show, and when you do have an increase in interferon gamma, but and and, and then they're correlating gene expression to say these genes predict that they're going to make the patient's T cells are coming online. So I'll finish right here. What you'll do is you'll have a patient that you're thinking about treating with like uh, anti-PD-1 or IL-7. You'll look at at when you uh, take their T cells and you stimulate them, say ex vivo, and add uh, anti-PD-1 or IL-7, do they restore their function. That patient's going to be a good candidate for immunotherapy. Um, and hopefully your gene therapy and things, I mean, your uh, gene expression data will then be used to replace it so we don't have to do the functional test. Okay. There is, there is a question for Dr. Mubawa. Uh One of the audiences uh, asking that, uh, can we use these new techniques at low and middle income countries at extreme conditions like very hot weather or uh, post in electricity? Yeah, actually, uh, I would like to really comment on that. First of all, there are uh, techniques available, for instance, that are supported by the Bill Gates Foundation to bring uh, these very simple PCR-based techniques to low- and middle-income countries. And uh, all uh, the evolving concepts that I have uh, shown uh, using biophotonics, like um, spectroscopy, things like that, are uh, essentially uh, very um, low costs are associated with these tests. So this is right now a rapidly evolving field, what you can uh, do, and the prices are going down, the techniques are getting available, and it's <clears throat> we are right now at the point where these techniques are set up in a way that they are one-world suitable, so they can be used at night in the ICU in uh, Europe or the U.S., as well as in low- and middle-income countries uh, because they do not require sophisticated um, support. They don't need a lot of hands-on time or trained personnel, so they are getting easier and easier and less expensive per sample. Okay, thank you very much. There is a question uh, uh, from the audience. Can we use... 0.5 PCT level as a cutoff value in pregnant patients. Uh, would you repeat the last part of the question? Excuse me. Uh, can, can, can we use 0.5 uh, PCT level as a cutoff value for uh, pregnant patients? For pregnant patients, 
pregnant patients, yes. Oh. <laughs> Difficult uh, question, eh? <laughs> I don't know who wants to answer that one. <laughs> I don't think we know. I don't think there's data for that. Yeah. I think the pregnant women actually are not, uh, you know, included in many of the trials. Um, so, honestly, I, I don't know. I, uh, I have not, not much uh, experience with this patient uh, population. Yeah. Okay. Uh, on, on, on that, hello, on that, this is uh, Jean-Paul Sosa from WHO. And yeah, I just hello. want to make Welcome. a comment. Thank you. Yes, believe me. Uh, yes, I think the, the, this uh, spotlight on maternal and neonatal uh, sepsis, I think this, this question was, was very um, interesting because highlights an important issue. The fact that uh, there are certain populations that are not really addressed by many of the, the studies that are uh, currently ongoing, particularly if we think about the development of the definition of uh, the sepsis 3 definition that did not consider or actively excluded pregnant women from the databases. Uh, I think just to, to highlight the importance of further um, research and attention to specific groups, including pregnant women, um, in this case, uh, pregnant women, they have about 100,000 maternal deaths that are related sepsis every year around the world and it's clearly an area where we don't normally focus our attention or research efforts. Yes, yes, I okay. Yeah, yeah hey, comment. Hi, this is so I, I yeah, sorry, I, I just wanted to say I agree with your comment and I think it's very important um that you know that that we really gathered more clinical data for this particular vulnerable patient population, because um, we are very hesitant with these with these um, patients, but we shouldn't uh, be, and we should be more active in involving them in trials, because otherwise we'll never understand the care for these patients. I agree. Uh, this is Tex Kassoon from the GSA, and what I'd like to do, uh, we're coming to the end of the conference, I'd like to thank uh, the audience for sticking with us all day. I'd also like to thank the speakers and the chairs and everyone who's made this possible, including our um, sponsors. Uh, this um, this uh, is just the start of a project, as we know, um, and I'd like to encourage everyone to participate in World Sepsis Day tomorrow and in the WHO campaign and the point prevalence study. I think from reflection for me, this is a continuation of a uh, quite a journey starting in 2010 uh, to the present day when we've gotten the new resolution. I hope that over the next little while we develop new partnerships and we continue the process, as Jao Paulo said, uh, to look at uh, uh, tackling some of the more difficult questions as it pertains to maternal and newborn sepsis. We know it's going to be difficult, but on reflection, I thought about uh, the quotation um, of uh, President Kennedy when he chose to go to the moon, and he said, uh, he chose not because it is easy, but because it is hard, and because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. And I think ultimately, um, uh, the best of our energies and skills will translate to better outcomes for our patients and families. So I'd like to thank everyone, and... Um, have a very good uh, uh, sepsis day, wool sepsis day tomorrow, and uh, 
hopefully we can continue on this journey thank you oh thank you okay thank you very much yes. uh, i am as a chair i should say thank you to all speakers uh, before closing the session uh, because uh, in a very limited time they gave us very important understandable guiding information uh, i also want to uh, present uh, present my graduate to participants they have have followed us two and half hours it's very it was very long session uh, dear co my colleagues we should be a unit our powers in order to become more powerful and successful in this war against sepsis please visit our global sepsis alliance webpage and world sepsis day website and please follow us on facebook twitter and instagram also please sign the world sepsis declaration uh also i would like to uh, say thank uh, and uh, to present our graduate to all of our sponsors who have enabled to organize this kind of web meetings that ensure the continuity of global sepsis alliance and world sepsis day thanks a lot to everybody and uh, see you at next organization have a good day Good evening, good morning, good afternoon for everybody. Thank you. And and before we we close, um, and on behalf of the World Health Organization and Global Sepsis Alliance, I would like to thank once more the audience. We had today over seven thousand three hundred participants from more than one hundred and forty countries. Uh, a big thank you from WHO to the speakers and chairs. Uh, that participated from around the world. Uh, special thanks to everybody that made this possible, particularly Marvin Vick, the Global Sepsis Alliance, and several institutions, organizations, and funders that have supported this event and are supporting the Global Maternal NATO Sepsis Initiative. And as a as a take home message, I'd like to to please for the the the, the audience to bear in mind that sepsis is a condition. That is associated with over six million deaths every year, including one million neonates and around hundred thousand maternal deaths. Um, want to emphasize that uh, there is a, a new WHO definition on maternal sepsis, and uh, there is a, a big study being conducted in fifty-four countries to test and further develop this definition. And once again, encourage everyone, everybody to participate in the World Sepsis Day uh, tomorrow, be it online or at local events in different countries around the world. And once again, to, to sign the, the World Sepsis uh, Declaration and invite you to, to engage on the social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, the, all the, the talks will be soon available at YouTube and an Apple podcast. So stay tuned to the Congress website for a release uh, schedule. You may also receive some information from WHO on your email address concerning this and other activities. And to end, uh, to finalize, I just want to wish everyone uh, a good end of the day for everyone and a good activity for tomorrow. Thank you.
Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsor, the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. This was the last session of the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight, Maternal and Neonatal Sepsis. And as of now, all sessions and talks are freely accessible on YouTube and on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for your interest. I encourage you to stay tuned to this channel, as we might release individual talks or announce something regarding the second World Sepsis Congress. This Congress was brought to you free of charge by the Global Sepsis Alliance and the World Health Organization. If you enjoyed it, please consider making a donation. The second World Sepsis Congress will return in 2018.